Welcome to the business podcast of the American Chamber of Commerce in Australia. AmCham Business Podcasts are hosted by Dr. Duff Watkins. Duff is a director of ExecSearch International, an author, and is also on the AmCham Council of Governors. AmCham, bringing business to you. Hello and welcome to the business podcast of the American Chamber of Commerce in Australia, Am Chan, bringing business to you. Today our guest is a former U.S. ambassador to Australia, Jeff Blake, and he is also the current, or is going to be the CEO of a new uh, group at Denton's, the world's largest law firm, and his role will be combining his previous diplomatic work with business. And today, you're going to hear about what's really happening in Silicon Valley, you're going to hear about the higher purpose of business, and since he is a diplomat, and uh, we're going to talk a little bit about politics too. He's a personal friend of President Obama, Hillary Clinton, and now I've just discovered Ted Cruz. So we'll be gaining some insights into the upcoming U.S. elections. So welcome to the show, Mr. Ambassador. Well, thanks, Duff. It's, uh, it's great to be here. Uh, there's a rumor going around town that you've been hanging out with George Clooney. Let's just start with that. Any truth <laughs> to that? My wife is very interested in hearing this. You know, my wife was very interested in this, too. Yeah, no, we, we had a chance to have dinner with George just a couple nights ago. And in fact, I almost turned it down because I was supposed to fly down here to Australia. And I told my wife that uh, we'd been invited, but that I had this late flight and I couldn't, I couldn't miss it. And she's like, we're going to that dinner with, with George Clooney. And so during the course of the dinner, I thought, well, it'll be easy. You know, we'll see him for a minute or two, but then we'll be able to... Uh, leave early, and instead he sat down with Beck at the table, and they started talking. And uh, suffice it to say, you know, I barely made my flight, and um, I'm still not sure where my wife is. So, um, George, <laughs> I want her back. I, I I told this to my wife, and she got she got jealous about your wife. So I, what's, what's this Clooney guy got that we're lacking? I tell you, quite a bit. <laughs> He's a yeah, charming that's, guy. That's what I was afraid of. That's what I was afraid of. Well, I, I know that you have spent a lot of time in Silicon Valley. You're, um, I won't say you're a creature of Silicon Valley, but you're very familiar with it. And many people think that Silicon Valley is the ideal form of capitalism, but you hold a slightly different view. Yeah, well, I've actually been around Silicon Valley since I first met my wife, and that was in, oh, let's see, 1980. So I, I go back there 36 years. It's a, it, it's a long time. And the mythology of Silicon Valley is that it is proof that you really don't need government, that it's just uh, leave a bunch of smart people to their own devices in the middle of nowhere, and they will create the most magnificent center for innovation in the world. And there is, there is a lot of truth to the entrepreneurial work that was done in um, in Silicon Valley, but there are other aspects of the story that just, you know, are being are being ignored. But I, I was there at the at the outset and so was my father in law and a number of other people. And it's been good to sort of piece that together. Mm-hmm. And it was really a combination. It's the it's a combination of really great technologists, um, real visionaries, um, first in vacuum tubes and then eventually into integrated circuits, building up a, a, a new set of technologies. And there were some visionary investors, like Arthur Rock and others, who saw the potential and were willing to put real money behind it. There were the research institutions that were generating very, very smart people who mm-hmm. were prepared to you know, combine with uh, the private sector, particularly Stanford and UC Berkeley. But the other piece of it was government. Government was at the forefront of investing in a lot of the things that became what we think of as Silicon Valley. It was DARPA, which created the ARPANET, which became you know the internet mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. and the World Wide Web. It was NASA, 
that, that use Silicon Valley as a, a way of developing the technologies that made it possible to go to the moon. And when people think about those technologies, they think, well, you know, rockets and, you know, and freeze-dried food, <laughs> you know, but they, they aren't thinking of cell phones and solar panels and Gore-Tex and artificial limbs mm -hmm. and, mm -hmm. and, and a whole range of new technologies that came out of that work. And so part of my effort has been to get people to remember that it's the combination of those four forces blending and working and swirling together that propels uh, the private sector and private sector innovation and make sure that we have all four blades of the propeller uh, working together. Why do you think government is not given the full credit for its participation in this function? I think there are a couple things going on. One is there's been kind of a you know, free kick a government um, message going on for decades now. And it's, you know, government's not, government's the problem, it's not the solution, you know, you gotta shrink government. Mm -hmm. they're, they're, and both parties, both parties have bought into it because it, it's popular during elections. <laughs> In fact, I saw Tom Friedman gave a great analogy. The, he's a writer for uh, New York Times. And he, he, he said that he was doing an investigation about the, um, the burger wars when McDonald's and Burger King were in this mad media war uh, trying to get bigger market share. And he talked to the head of Burger King and asked him, you know, with all the money that you're spending on advertising, you know, why don't you just go after McDonald's on, you know, their hamburgers, talk about how nasty their hamburgers are or something. And uh, the, <laughs> the guy said, uh, you know, he was head of marketing for Burger King. He said, you can't do that. The very first rule of marketing is do not kill the category. But we've been killing the category of governance mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. suggesting that government can't solve problems. But frankly, you need government to create the sort of free environment in which there's free capital, free markets, freedom of speech, you know, free thought, free travel, all the things that, that are essential to Silicon Valley. You have to have investment uh, where the government sends market signals and says there are certain things that we need as a society that technologists can produce. And we don't know how to make it, but we know what we need. And then create money and incentives for those things to happen, uh, which is, you know, DARPA, which is NASA, uh, and other examples. You see it even with the uh, Human Genome Project, which was funded by the federal government. And then the third thing is to deal with the unintended consequences of new technologies. Technology does great things, but it also can be very disruptive. In fact, that's the word everyone uses in Silicon mm -hmm. Valley now. They love to talk about how disruptive they are. But, for example, self-driving cars. Yeah, there are, I think, four and a half million Americans who earn their living driving. Cabs, buses, mm -hmm. uh, trucks, forklifts. You know, they don't see self-driving vehicles as, a, as, as something great for their lives and their lifestyles. It could potentially put them out of work. Mm -hmm. And so what does government do? to ensure that that large group of people who have worked hard and have you know, families to, to feed and are, and are taxpayers, how do they retool and find their place in, an, in, in a new economy? So there, there's a role for government in various phases of the innovation story. And that's, that's the important thing to get out, to keep that, as I said, the, not, not only the fourth propeller there, but nimble and sharp enough to really keep up with the other propellers, which are doing very well. I, I know from my own personal experience of living and traveling around the world is that good governance is not an accident. And I've been in a lot of places, and I'm sure you have, where you, you cannot take it for granted. Right, right. No, I mean, I, I used to tell this story when I was ambassador here. And I said, okay, 
uh, I've been reading about two different countries. Both have about 23 million people. Both are in relatively resource-rich areas with, you know, uh, gorgeous oceans uh, bordering them. Um, and one of them is Australia, and one of them is Yemen. And uh, a lot of what constrains Yemen is its, you know, governance, leadership, relationships with its neighbors. You know, we, we tend to underestimate the importance of governance and uh, in countries that are pretty well governed. Mm-hmm. In fact, all we can do is talk about how bad they are <laughs> until you visit other parts of the world. And then you realize, oh, governance makes a huge difference in the ability of people to achieve their destiny and you know, to have fulfilled lives and to be able to create things and use their, you know, use their God-given skills to produce something special. Mm-hmm. And you see that in uh, the U.S., you see it in Australia. You see it in a, you know, a few dozen countries, but a lot of countries you don't see it at all. I like to quote my Brazilian wife who, when we were traveling in the U.S. one time, she said, life here is just so easy, to which I replied, yeah, and they don't even know it. Yeah. That's the thing. <laughs> That's true. I've heard you talk about the higher purpose of business. Can you tell us what you meant by that or what you mean by that? Yeah, I think you're seeing it now where these large companies like um, Google and Facebook and Amazon, and they are, they're all looking at, it's not just what is the next product, but what is the next society? When, when, what, are we, what are we trying to build out that will make society a better place? Now, I think it was, it was Henry Ford who said if I asked people what they wanted, they would have wanted a faster horse. Steve Jobs used to talk about people don't know what it is that they want until you create it. So what is it that the world really wants? And we spent a lot of time thinking about what happens to all these people who are displaced from certain fields because of technology, artificial intelligence, robots, self-driving vehicles, all the other things that will make our lives easier but will also take away jobs that exist today. And we're thinking those things are designed to take away the limitations on our life, make energy abundant and cheap, make food abundant and cheap and water and, and, and make it possible for people to have homes and, you know, and, and reasonable shelter. And you take away the difficulty of getting from one place to another through new transportation technologies. And you're liberating people from a lot of the things that have inhibited human growth. Then you make, you know, healthcare better. People lead longer and more productive lives. What are we going to do with that life? Um, because now we've got a lot more free time. We've got a lot longer life. We don't have to spend all of our labor just meeting the necessities. What can we do differently? And I think the message is we can work on the things that have made us so destructive to one another. We, we've been so busy building a society that at the same time we haven't paid a lot of attention to the fact that a lot of children are born who don't receive adequate care. And a lot of people at the end of life don't have anyone there for them to support them through their most difficult days. Mm-hmm. And people who struggle with mental health problems or, or addictions you know, can barely afford the most rudimentary kinds of care and treatment, and we certainly haven't solved those puzzles. In, in many ways, we are still doing these barbaric things to each other, crime waves and mass incarcerations and institutionalizations and, and, and genocides and slaughters and wars and all these things where you know, we're, all, we're all part of the same species, sharing the same planet, and we kind of accept those as normal. 
But if we had the latitude, if we had the capacity to devote our energies to creating labor forces that try and reduce that, conciliators and counselors and caregivers and trainers and, um, and people who are developing programs and technologies, whether, whether drugs or just uh, technological innovations that can reduce those negative things that we do to one another, you know, imagine what this world would be like. Mm, mm. Uh, and I think uh, I'm not alone in having this kind of quixotic vision. I heard Jeff Bezos uh, from the Amazon. Founder of Amazon, yes. Founder of Amazon, uh, recently, to my surprise, saying a very similar thing. I, I'm sure you're not alone. Uh, in fact, you can include me in that group. And I'll, I'll, this is the way that I often put it, because I hear executives, senior executives will say to me, well, the purpose of business is to make money, is to make profit. And I say, well, no, actually, it's not. You need profit in order to have a business. But that's not the purpose. The purpose is to provide a good or a service. In other words, there is a higher purpose yeah. or good. And sometimes they look at me and go, blink, 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 you know, but that's, that's another story. Let's make the transition from technology to um, the world of law firms. Now, you do have a, a day job. You were the former U.S. ambassador to Australia, but you were explaining to me the other night that Denton's is now the world's largest law firm. And I was under the, the impression that it was another one. And you kind of reminding me that it's like the football ladder. It changes every week, you know. <laughs> so Denton's is currently the world's largest firm. And you've, you've got a, a new and interesting role. What can you tell us about that? Well, you know, I'll, I'll tell you what attracted me to Denton's. And then I can tell you a little bit about the role, but it's still to be announced. Mm -hmm. the, um, what attracted me to Denton's is they, they're doing two things that are interesting. First, they said, look, every other professional services operation whether it is medicine or accounting, has done some radical transformation in the past 20 or 30 years. And particularly if you look at accounting, for example, they said, we shouldn't just be solving someone's you know, audit issue or some, some general accounting issue. Companies come to us with a whole range of issues relating to their finances, and we should be able to provide them the full range of services, whatever it is, wherever it is. So they started tying up through Swiss Orion structures with other accounting groups all over the world so they could be available to clients anywhere in, in the world for these multinational companies. And they also started tying up with accounting, uh, the, with consulting groups mm -hmm. to work with their accountants. And so the concept of Dendons was why, why aren't lawyers doing the same thing? Uh, most people who have a legal problem um, also have a communications problem and a regulatory problem and a management problem. And, and all of these things are interrelated. Why wouldn't we have those sorts of services available wherever our clients are, wh whatever they're doing? And so they have constructed through very thoughtful, strategic tie-up relationships uh, with great firms around the world, this now the largest law firm in the world. And here in Australia, for example, um, working with Gaydon's, fabulous firm, mm -hmm. um, in Singapore with Rodike, in China with Tachang, and and uh, throughout the world having having these relationships that are available. So I was I was attracted to the platform because I like the idea that you can solve a whole range of problems. I also like the fact that they were thinking that 
learning is going to change with artificial intelligence mm-hmm. and with um, big data computing and a lot of other things. The, the stuff that we pay lawyers for today will go away. And mm-hmm. what we're really going to need are their judgment, their networks, their relationships, their their capacity to understand the human consequences of things that a, that a computer couldn't. But it's going to be a, a much more nuanced role for lawyers. So we're looking for a particular kind of lawyer and looking to better understand the technologies that can make our services more accessible and cheaper for people. And then, as so I was attracted to the firm, but then they reached out to me and they, and here's the part that's somewhat uh, embargoed, uh, and they said, we want to create a consulting group with you as a CEO, which will allow us to address one of the big international sets of challenges in the world, and we really need former diplomats and former people with government experience who can help us accomplish that. Mm-hmm. And so I'll be stepping into that role and just watch this space, and we'll tell you a little bit more about who's going to be involved and what it what it is. I will be watching this space. It's a good example of how transformation and disruption occurs not just in technical firms, but there is no business that is exempt from it. Professional services, legal services, my industry, executive search. Yeah. Uh, and this is the point that I like to make. All businesses evolve, adapt, or die, as the yeah. case may be. Yeah. No, look, I, I, I'm writing a piece right now, which will probably make um, lawyers unhappy. <laughs> but I said, for example, look, we've got this huge mismatch there are, um, in the United States and also in Australia, you have lots of people who can't get legal services for certain kinds of issues. They can't mm-hmm. get them for credit card debt. They can't get it for, a lot of times, family law issues. They can't get it for immigration issues because uh, there aren't enough lawyers practicing in that field. One of the reasons is, you know, if you're going to make people get a full legal degree, they're going to practice in other areas that are a bit more lucrative and, and that sort of thing. Doctors figured out a long time ago that not everyone's got to be a regular MD. You can have dentists, you can have podiatrists, you can have registered nurses. You can have lots of people who can provide some form of medical service uh, without giving the full range of medical services that an MD can provide. We we should create limited licenses. We should disrupt mm-hmm. uh, the legal profession and change that element. And you could change a lot of other elements with um, artificial intelligence and you know a few other uh, wise tweaks. I also think that you know we shouldn't have the kind of exclusivity where only lawyers can be partners with other lawyers. I think lawyers should be able to have financial arrangements with other professions that are serving their clients' needs. Now, I want to turn to politics for just a bit because I know you have some involvement there. <laughs> By the way, did you know that former Prime Minister of Australia, Paul Keating, says Jeff Blake is the best ambassador we've ever had here from the U.S.? <laughs> and I think personally, when you do have high personal popularity in Australia, I really think it's because you brought the big O to Australia. Uh, do you remember that? <laughs> yeah, Oprah. <laughs> yeah, Oprah Winfrey, that's right. Yeah, ambassador right. Blake brought Oprah Winfrey to Australia to Sydney. Sydney was a Buzz for a week about that. That was great. I think the other guy, uh, Obama, came yes. here too, as I recall. Yes. Yeah, and in fact, he announced the rebalance to Asia uh, here in Australia, in Canberra, and then I, you know, had the privilege of, of being part of that and also flying with him to Darwin and spending some some real time focusing on the U.S.-Australia relationship in the course of that whole set of actions that we took for the rebalance. I'll tell you my I'll tell you my favorite story though about mm-hmm. the um, <laughs> when the president was uh, getting ready to deliver his remarks, you know, we had gone over his, his speech and, you know, I, and I said, you know, one thing you ought to know is that Australians are, you know, they're very, they're, they're wonderful hosts and 
but very direct. And so if, you know, if, if uh, they don't just give someone a standing ovation simply because they're the guest of honor, and in fact, in a formal place like Parliament, uh, you'll probably receive an ovation, but I wouldn't expect people to stand. So I, so I don't take it the wrong way if they don't. So he delivers a speech, and at the very end, the entire Parliament erupts. Everyone leaps to their feet, and there's just rolling wave after wave of thunderous applause, people standing. And uh, we get back in the car afterward. The president turns to me and goes, I got the standing O, Jeff. <laughs> and then he goes, I think you ought to raise your game a little bit. <laughs> so that was my goal the rest of the time was to see if I could get a standing ovation. To elicit a standing ovation. <laughs> well, I, I'm, a, I'm a political junkie, and, and so I left discussing politics, and I have, because I've lived in Australia for 35 years now, people come up to me and they say, Duff, what is going on in the U.S. political scene now? You got Trump and Cruz and Hillary and, and Bernie, and explain it to us. And I, frankly, I'm struck for words sometimes, so what is happening in the U.S.? Well, it is a little baffling if you look at it from the outside looking in. If you just look objectively at how the United States is doing, uh, the trend lines are all extraordinarily positive. You know, seven years ago, the Dow Jones was at 6,500. Today, it's at 18,000. Unemployment was at 10%. Now it's at 5%, so the natural rate of unemployment in the United States. We're the most competitive economy in the world. We've, you know, had an energy revolution. We, you know, we've reduced our carbon footprint dramatically, and we've increased jobs, and particularly manufacturing jobs. We've got some of the lowest energy prices in the world. We, we don't have an ongoing conflict that requires, you know, our, our troops to be uh, putting their their lives on the line. We have special advisors and some um, um, special operations in certain areas, but we are not in a we're not in a war in uh, in in any one theater. We're we're fighting terrorism, but we're not we're not embroiled in nation to nation conflicts. A lot of things that you know, peace, prosperity. That's that's what people are looking for. And so when you see the anxiety and the, and, and the rhetoric coming out of this election campaign, I think a lot of our friends around the world are shaking their head and trying to figure out what's going on. And I think there are a number of different factors. Part of it is just a reaction to 2007, 2008. People were so busy trying to get their lives back in order, get their jobs, or keep their jobs, or you know, keep their home, or you know, get back their home, uh, that they were scrambling day to day. And they didn't have time to be angry at government. But they felt government had let them down. And now that we've stabilized enough, they can vent that anger. And I think you're finally really seeing a reaction uh, to that. I think there's a technology is moving very, very fast, perhaps faster than most Americans feel they can handle. That's creating its own anxiety, too, which is, okay, well, I'm better now, but I've just been through this traumatic experience of losing my job, and what happens if a driverless car replaces me or a new robot replaces me? Uh, what am I going to do? Uh, how am I going to feed my family? Mm. How will my child's life be as good as mine? And so people are looking down the road, and they're anxious about the potential for all this disruption to disrupt them. I think wages, too, are a major issue. Because, you know, people have been living the American dream for 60 years. But at first, they were just living it because, you know, they got a good education with the GI Bill coming out of World War II. And they got a leg up on their first mortgage. And they were able to buy a house and get a job work 40 hours a week and, you know, put their kids to school, uh, support themselves, take, have a vacation, have health care, and be able to retire with dignity. That was, that was the American dream. And then... 
you know, we, we didn't really raise wages for most Americans. We, we compensated first by having uh, dual wage earners in a home. So we had both people working. Mm-hmm. Then we started working longer hours or sometimes moonlighting and doing two jobs. And then when people ran out of hours and ran out of wage earners in the home, we started borrowing money. Um, but we didn't raise wages. And we're finally getting to a point where people are saying, you know, we are doing everything but what we need to do, which is pay a decent wage. And so now you're seeing states raising the minimum wage to $15 an hour and doing other things that are, you know, know, economists would say long overdue. But until that is accomplished, the people are feeling like I'm working harder, everyone in the family is working, but I feel like I'm getting into debt. So those are the sources of anxiety. America fundamentals, extremely strong. But in terms of our ability to reassure the public that it's going to be okay, they're looking for real leadership in government, and they're concerned that uh, based on some of the infighting and based on some of the the mistakes that were made in the 2007 era, they're they're nervous. And that's what I think you're seeing. That was a long answer, but uh, an important question. Well, it, it fits psychologically because in my previous career as a psychotherapist, I can tell you all these um, actions are motivated by fear. Yeah. I mean, and not surface fear, but deep fear. Well, and on the surface. So that's the question is to ask is what are they afraid of? And they seem to be, the American public, the ones we're reading about and the ones you vote in the primaries, seem to be accepting facile, easy preposterous solutions to quite complicated, complex problems. I always quote President Obama, he said, all the easy problems get solved before they get to my desk. And right. President Truman said that every president says that. Yeah, no, I mean, look, uh, the term demagogue, most people throw it around in the media, but if you got to go back and look at the definition of demagogue, it's an individual who plays upon people's fears and prejudices and false promises of easy solutions uh, in order to gain political power. Um, So the fact that they coined the term and that it's been around since the dawn of democracies Mm -hmm. means this isn't anything new. And so think about the the debate about people worrying about losing their jobs. A very simplistic answer is, oh, you're worried you're going to lose your job? Well, the reason you're going to lose your job is because of people from other countries, these immigrants who are going to take your job from you. So I'm going to build a big wall, and I'm going to make the immigrants pay for it uh, to keep them out, and then you keep your job, you know, solved. Um, it's a simple idea based upon playing on people's fears, prejudices, and false promises of what could be delivered. N- none of that's true. The jobs aren't going away because of immigrants. Immigration has been a, a, a key source of our prosperity throughout American history. And just because one job goes away doesn't mean a new job doesn't pop up. You know, look at our transformation from an agricultural society to an industrial society. And the notion that other countries, you know, are going to pay to build walls um, uh, to, to keep their folks out. No one in Washington, D.C. believes that to be true. And even some of the people who uh, support candidates who have announced it uh, don't believe it would actually happen. Let me ask you about um, Hillary Clinton. By my take, she could be running away with the nomination by now, and perhaps by she should be, according to form, and yet she's not yet, or she still has these lingering perceptions, which is interesting to me because she's been in the public eye for a long time, and I had to laugh when I think it was Bernie Sanders called her unqualified. I would say she's probably one of the more competent qualified people to be running for this office in a long, long time. Mm. Why hasn't she nailed it yet? 
Oh, I think there are, you know, look, there are, there are a number of factors going on. One is Democrats as a, as a group, we tend, we tend to be pretty tough on people we've known for a long time and much more positive about people who are, who are, who are fresh on the scene. You know, we think about um, FDR coming on the scene or JFK or Bill Clinton or Barack Obama, um, who kind of, you know, just, just appeared uh, on, on the scene, and then think about how we treated uh, Al Gore, John Kerry, others, which is, you know, well, you've been around a while. <laughs> we know you. So I think, I think the, the notion that she's been around a while, that should help her. I actually think it actually um, is, is not helpful in the, in the Democrat Party. Um, uh, different from the Republican Party, actually, which tends to, you know, advance people who have been around for a while until this election cycle. Mm. I think the second thing is, as I was talking about, there is a sense of government let us down. And that global financial crisis, the Iraq war, a number of other things that um, have had people feeling badly about government leadership. And so being part of the establishment, you know, having been in government for a long period of time is actually tough on a candidate this time around. And when you look at the other three significant players left in the campaign at this point, one has no government experience at all, mm -hmm, ever. Mm -hmm. um, another one, Ted Cruz, has only been in the U.S. Senate for two years and has run his campaign based upon being someone who everyone in the Senate dislikes. <laughs> and, Novel and, strategy. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and then you have um, Bernie Sanders, who has really made a career of being, you know, a person in the in the Senate who has been, you know, critical of government and has not been able to sort of crack the inner circle um, in terms of passing a lot of bills and things like that and being seen as a uh, as a major force within mm -hmm. the Senate despite his long tenure there. And those are all seen as positives. Uh, so I, I think that's part of it. I also think that we tend to have a very robust democracy. We we like a fight, and we sort of the media likes to keep people in there. Uh, and I, I I think it's I think it's actually been good for Secretary Clinton that she's had this. I think it's gotten a lot of young people interested in the issues, and they were a little passive about this election. I think they're fired up, and and having them think about the issues is probably a positive thing for her long term. I think it's probably kept her sharp and in the news and sort of combat ready for a, a very bruising general election. Uh, and so if she does win the nomination, uh, and again, you know, it's an ongoing thing, but I, I, I don't think that this is necessarily a, a negative that it's gone on as long as it has. Maybe one last question. Who do you think will run and, and who do you think will be elected? You knew, it was, you knew it was coming. You knew that question was coming. Well, look, I, I will tell you, you know, if people were judged on the predictions that they made at the outset of this election about who would be in the final, final group and how they would be doing at this stage, then every pundit in America would have been fired mm -hmm. because no one got this one right. Mm -hmm. It is very, very hard to predict, a very unusual political season. So I won't, I won't predict who's going to win, but I will tell you what I think are the critical moments coming up. I think if Hillary Clinton is successful tomorrow uh, or in, in New York and in Pennsylvania in these, in these upcoming uh, major state primaries, then uh, she'll probably have a, a delegate lead, which is insurmountable. And Bernie Sanders would have to win. Uh, by the end of the month, he'd probably have to win 90% of all delegates in all remaining contests. And, mm -hmm. and I think that would fairly well establish her. In the Republican uh, convention, unless unless things change dramatically, 
I could see this going to a brokered convention. I could mm -hmm. see mm -hmm. it being an open election, but I don't see any way that uh, a traditional establishment Republican would emerge. My guess mm -hmm. is that if you look at the outcome of all the primaries and all the caucuses, um, the people who look like Mitt Romney or John McCain or mm -hmm. Jeb Bush uh, were all polling in the 10, 11, 12 percent range uh, and were never able to get traction within the Republican Party. I think the Republicans have made a decision that they want a Tea Party-style candidate this time around. Mm. And the two leading candidates are anti-government or, you know, true Tea Party. So I, I, I think that whatever they do in the convention, if it's not Donald Trump or Ted Cruz, it will be someone very similar to them in, hmm. in some form or another. Hmm. Well, interesting times ahead. We'll see, we'll see if I get fired from my job as a political <laughs> pundit. But, you know, at least I put it on the line. You did. You what did. I love about Aussies is they say, look, I, you know, I don't care if you're right or wrong. I just want you to, you know, have a go. So I just had, I had my go. You had a go. You had a go. <laughs> and we're grateful for that. You've been listening to the Business Podcast of the American Chamber of Commerce today. Our guest has been the former U.S. Ambassador to Australia, Jeff Blake. And my name is Duff Watkins. We value your opinion if you are listening to us through iTunes. You can easily hit the subscribe button, leave a review, make a comment, all of which are very appreciated because we want to know what you want to know. In other words, what topics, what people, what issues are of interest to you. Just email us podcast at amcham.com.au. In fact, you can hear more of the podcast on the website, amcham.com.au. Amcham, bringing business to you. Thank you for listening. You've been listening to the Business Podcast of the American Chamber of Commerce in Australia. This podcast is supported by VML. VML is a full-service digital marketing agency that can take you where you want to go. Everything we are is in everything we do. This is Amcham bringing business to you.